0: Good morning, everybody. Join me in Isaiah chapter six. So if you have a copy of God's word on iPad phone, you can find it pretty easily. If you're still looking for it in that old-fashioned thing we called a book and you're not quite sure how to find it, if you'll just take your two thumbs, go right in the center of your Bible, it should fall open right around the Psalms. From there, just start working your way toward the back of the book. You're going to hit Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and immediately after the Song of Solomon, you'll come to the prophecy of Isaiah. We're going to be all over the Bible today in various uh, and sundry texts, but this is where we're going to start, Isaiah chapter 6. We're in the middle of a series called The Story, where we're covering the entire storyline of the Bible in about six months. So we started on January the 8th with Genesis chapter 1. We're going to do our best to finish up the book of Revelation and the end of the story by the second Sunday in June. Now, obviously that means we're flying really, really high and really, really fast, uh, but we're able to hit the high points of the story to give you and our people handles on how to understand scripture and what it means so that wherever you are in the Bible, you understand how it connects to that larger story of God redeeming the world back to himself through the person and the work of Jesus. And here's where we've been so far. We began Where the scriptures do in the period of beginnings. First 11 chapters of Genesis tell us who we are, where we came from, what our purpose is, what we were supposed to be prior to the fall. It also tells us the beginning of every single problem that we face on the planet today. Every act of warfare, every famine, every sickness, every plague that has hit humanity on an individual and a corporate level can be traced back to a patient zero whose name is Adam. Our first father, yours and mine, who decided rather than obey God that he would rebel against the plans of God and immediately then All of creation begins to collapse in on itself. Our parents are placed outside the garden, and you and I have lived a life ever since outside the garden, and thus outside of fellowship with God. But early in that narrative, we also see another beginning, the beginning of God's plan of redemption to bring humanity back to himself, and it comes in Genesis 3.15 when he says, I'm going to initiate warfare with the serpent who has tempted our first parents. And in doing so, that seed from the woman is going to come and he's going to crush the head of the serpent. This is the first time in the Bible that we hear of the promise of a Messiah who's going to come and every other story, every other character, every other circumstance in scripture is now tied to this promise. That's what we see in the period of beginnings. Then we begin to see the period of patriarchs, God acting in human history to bring that about. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. Four men, four generations of men who will lay the foundation for a nation called Israel, a nation that will rise up and will eventually produce the very seed that God promised from the beginning. But we see early on in that story even that the nation of Israel finds herself enslaved in Egypt. And so we enter this next period of Egyptian slavery and deliverance. They are under the thumb of a very harsh Pharaoh. They must be brought out of Egypt and back to their promised land. And so God raises up another figure, a man by the name of Moses, who guides them out of the promised land and leads them just to the east side of the Jordan River prior to their conquest. That then takes us into the period of conquest and settlement. Moses dies and is buried uh, in the plains of Moab. And Joshua, the great military commander, takes over. And we see there the story of his leading God's people to conquer the enemies of God and take the land that God had promised to their father Abraham. They divide it up, and then at the end of that story, Joshua looks at the nation of Israel, and he challenges them to follow God faithfully. That's a challenge at which they fail spectacularly. Pastor Chris then covered the period of the judges with us many weeks ago, a period in which every man did what was right in his own eyes. There was no king in Israel, and there was much anarchy and bloodshed and carnage and confusion. And even though God raised up judges to tell Israel to repent, there was cycle after cycle of rebellion followed by repentance followed by more rebellion. And the end of this period is a testimony to the fact that God, even in his faithfulness, contrasted with his people who are unfaithful. These people cannot be faithful to God. And in their minds, the answer is, is we got to have some new form of government. There's got to be a system change. Something has to push the reset button on our entire society. That then catapults us into the period of the United Monarchy, beginning with King Saul, then King David. And then a couple of weeks ago, right before the Easter season, we covered the life and the reign of King Solomon, a king who was given the kingdom on a platter from his father, David, Great extended borders, mighty military, uh, strong economy, balanced system of justice. And by the end of Solomon's reign, we already begin to see the kingdom begin to fray. And so even the the last time we looked at this series together, we saw an entrance into this next period that we're going to look at today. That is the period of the divided kingdom of Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And remember, all of this connects to God's promise. I'm going to send the seed of the woman. I'm going to send a Messiah. He's going to redeem us, my people, from their sins, and he's going to restore the cosmos back to its original and intended order. And even in the period of the divided kingdom, we see God actively involved in doing these things. But this begins with the split of the kingdom. Again, Solomon has handed off a very frayed, very weak kingdom to his son, Rehoboam. And we covered this a couple of weeks ago. Rehoboam is approached by many of these slaves, those who had been made slaves under Solomon through the vassal states that had been conquered under Solomon's father David. They come to Rehoboam, they say, We want to unite the country, we we have no desire to split or to harm the nation, but we cannot live as slaves anymore. Rehoboam then goes in and he he converses with two groups of people, his father's advisors who had much experience and much wisdom even in spite of Solomon's own liabilities and his locker room buddies that he grew up with. And Rehoboam ultimately decides, I'm going to go with my meathead friends that, you know, who used to just conduct all kinds of foolishness with me. They tell me, don't lighten up, press down harder. That then becomes the straw that breaks the camel's back and literally breaks the kingdom into two pieces. You can see that on the map up here. Israel, under the reign of Jeroboam the I... Leads a rebellion that results in 80% of the population going north with the nation of Israel and its capital, Samaria. Okay? So that's the think about that. That's not just 80% of the people, that's 80% of the brain trust, 80% of the economy, 80% of the military, 80% of everything goes north. Rehoboam is left with 20% of the population of this one great, once great country. And so now we have not one nation but two. Israel in the north with its capital of Samaria, Judah in the south, with its capital of Jerusalem. And from that point, covering the next 350 years is the divided kingdom. So here's my challenge. This is how you can pray for your pastor this morning as I deliver God's word to you. I have to cover a period of 350 years of history for you today. That's like saying we're going to start in America when the Quakers came in pre-colonial America and end at the present day, and I'm going to cover all of that for you in about 45 minutes, all right? So I need you to pray for me. Okay, I'll give you a brief overview, starting with this chart that's coming up, of these kings. You see the northern kingdom kings on the left, the southern kingdom kings on the right. Now here's the interesting thing. When you contrast these two kingdoms, you would think, at least in the beginning, that the north would be more stable and that the north would last longer. Again, they took 80% of everything. They're the ones that should have a stouter military. They're the ones that should have a more stable throne. But that's actually not what happens. Every asterisk that you can see next to the name of every king in both the northern and the southern columns here represents a king who reigned for less than two years. So when you have someone who doesn't make it two years, you have instability in the kingdom. The north had seven such kings. The south only had three. And so over the course of history, what we see is what started out to be the stronger kingdom actually ends up being the least stable And what starts out appearing to be the weaker kingdom ends up lasting 150 years longer than their northern counterpart. And all of this, of course, will terminate in 722 BC for the north, who will be conquered by the Assyrian Empire. And then roughly 150 years later, the Babylonians will come in, they will topple Jerusalem, and they will capture the south. And then we will see there's no longer one kingdom or two kingdoms, there's no kingdom left. That's a a period called the exile that we'll be covering next week. But this is the list of kings. And if you look at Chronicles, 1 Chronicles and 2 Chronicles, you will see almost every single one of these men is assessed by something called the regnal formula. Three things that you would see recorded by the biblical writers. The number of years that the king reigned, whether it was two or whether it was 40. The circumstances of the king's burial, where he's buried. And an assessment of his reign. Notice what's in bold there as it related to covenant faithfulness. Not how large the economy was, not what kind of military he built. One thing every single king was judged on. Did he or did he not obey the Lord his God? That's what anybody ought to look at in a leader. That's what any of us should aspire to be. I'll give you a couple of examples from this. One good one, Jehoshaphat of the southern kingdom, reigned in Judah. He was 35 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 25 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was was Azubah, the daughter of Shili. He walked in the way of Asa, his father, and did not turn aside from it, doing what was right in the sight of the Lord. Now, if you read the wider narrative of Jehoshaphat, you read a lot more that is highly complimentary of him. But at the end of his life, only one thing really mattered. Did he do what was right in the sight of the Lord? Now, let's contrast that with another king, Ammon. Was 22 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned two years in Jerusalem. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord as Manasseh his father had done. Ammon sacrificed to all the images that Manasseh his father had made and had served them. So many of us wonder someday what is it that's going to be on our tombstone? What is it that we're going to be remembered for? And the only thing that really should be important in our minds is the example of what we've seen here. Because again, Iman, like Jehoshaphat, there's a wider narrative of his reign, and there are good things in it, and there are bad things in it. But just like his counterpart, Jehoshaphat, there's only one thing that matters at the end of his life. Did he worship the Lord his God, or did he worship the graven images of his father, Manasseh? That's it. From God's perspective, guys, that's the only thing that matters. And and I bring that up here early in the message because that's true of us as well. That's true of us. At the end of our lives, we're going to face that question. At the end of your life, it will not matter what kind of car you drive. It won't matter what kind of house you live in. It won't matter how many degrees you have hanging on your wall. It will not matter how successful you appear. None of that will matter. You know why? Because you're going to be naked. When you stand in front of the Lord your God, you will have nothing, and neither will I, one criteria upon which our lives will be assessed. Did you do good or did you do evil in the sight of the Lord? Were you or were you not faithful to the Lord your God? That's where these kings are held accountable. And the way in which they were held accountable, no matter who they were, where they reigned, or when they reigned, was through a group of men called the Prophets. That's where we're going to spend the majority of our time today. What I want you to see is that coinciding with the men you've just seen in that 350-year period of history were a selection of men, various personalities and backgrounds. They lived in different places. They, they employed different means to, to get their message out. But the prophets... Were the ones who held the kings and the people under the reign of those kings accountable. So we need to ask ourselves, what is a prophet? There's a couple of different words that appear in Hebrew that describe this office. The first is seer. And a seer has the ability to... Yeah, you're educated people, right? That's not hard. But here's the thing. There's a level of sight these men have that others don't have. They have not just the ability to see what's right in front of them. They have the ability to see what others miss. And in particular, they have the ability to rise above a situation and explain it and present it from the perspective of God. Okay? Wouldn't it be great? How many of you sit down and you listen to the news at night on occasion and you see somebody from the left here and somebody from the right here, and after about three minutes, they just descend into this back and forth where they're screaming at each other and you just turn the television off? Have you ever had that experience? Like, you got no information out of that, okay? A prophet would have the ability to rise above that and say, here's the real issue. Here's what's going on. And here's what God thinks of the wider issue. While you guys are doing your little tit for tat down here on MSNBC, there's a God who reigns from heaven and a prophet will be able to say, this is the perspective of God. Here's the other thing we know about a prophet. Not just a seer, but this other word, navi, which means to bubble forth. It means they had an urgent message that they could not hold in. It just had to come out. How many of you have had that experience before? I just got this, I just, I just got to say it, right? And if some of you maybe should have held it, I don't know, right? But for a prophet, it's like, I can't stop it. We'll see this next week when we look at Jeremiah. Jeremiah wants to quit. Jeremiah has a horrible assignment from God, and there's a place in the Bible where he says, this message he has given me is like a fire in my bones. That's not a positive statement, okay? Older pastors used to preach that, and I remember sitting in church as a kid, listening to him get all excited about the fire. No, he doesn't want to preach anymore, but he can't help himself because God's put this sense of urgency in him, and he hates himself for it because he can't help it. But that's essentially what, what's the, what is the essence of a prophet. So someone who can see the perspective of God and who has a sense of urgency on how that divine perspective applies to the situation at hand. Situation. So there's this grand sense of history and God's work in it, and it's coupled with a sense of urgency about immediate and relevant things. So that's what's transpiring history. This is what's going on. It's happening for this reason. And so, uh, no matter who these guys are or where they come from, they basically had the same message. Here's what God is doing in history at this time and this place, and here's what you need to do. You need to keep the covenant. You need to serve the poor. You need to ensure justice for everybody, regardless of who they are, or where they come from, or how much money's in their wallet. You need to stop sleeping around, and you need to stop worshiping other gods. That was pretty much the same message, regardless of who they were or where they came from. And ultimately, their message is this. There is a temporary nation that we're a part of that is beginning to come unwound. Whether you're in the north or whether you're in the south. You might be in the south where it lasts 150 years longer, but eventually it's going to end. And as the nation around you weakens, you need to be reminded that you're headed for an eternal city that will never perish. That was the message of the prophets. And here's what the prophets teach us. God can use absolutely anybody as his messenger. He can. See, there's certain kinds of qualities that we tend to look for. I I wonder sometimes when I walk through this building, it's it's very rarely empty. There's always something going on around here. But every once in a while I come in here and it's just empty and I just walk through and I pray because I don't know who the next pastor is going to be. But that individual might be in our kid men right now. They might have been a part of our youth ministry at nine o'clock. One of you, you, you might be one of your kids. They might be sitting right in front of me. You never know who God's going to raise up. And you may be sitting there wondering, I don't know how in the world God could use me. And by the time we get done with some of the character profiles we're going to look at and you see the literal characters that God uses, you're going to go, wow. Well, I guess if he can use those individuals, he can probably use me as well. So, there's four things I want you to see as we survey the prophets in this particular period of history. Number one is messengers of God can come from anywhere, they can come from anywhere. Now, we're going to see this as we contrast two contemporaries of each other, Isaiah on the one hand and Micah on the other. So let's start with Isaiah. That's what brings us to chapter 6. It's in front of you in your lap right now. He prophesies in the southern kingdom during a 40-year period covering the reigns of four kings, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. And his reign be- his, his, his ministry actually begins In the year that Uzziah dies, Uzziah was a very wealthy, very powerful, and well-respected beloved king. He had extended the borders as far as they had been since the time of David. People loved him. It was a time of peace and prosperity. And then all of a sudden, Uzziah gets a case of leprosy. Still a very dreaded disease in our day, but at least it's treatable. In the ancient world, it was a long, slow, painful, and lonely death sentence. Because in addition to having parts of your body fall off, you're quarantined away. And so the last several years of Uzziah's reign, he's actually off, uh, exi- almost in self-imposed exile in his own kingdom. And in the midst of that, as you can imagine, there's great uncertainty. Think about times in the history of our own nation. The assassination of Abraham Lincoln, the sudden death of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the assassination of John F. Kennedy, the death of Ronald Reagan. Whether you voted for those individuals or not, well, you wouldn't have voted for people except for Kennedy and Reagan, but you know what I mean. It doesn't matter whether you liked them or not or whatever your particular political party was. These were individuals who were beloved, respected they were looked to for stability. And then when they die, there's great uncertainty. That's the context into which Isaiah was called in his ministry. And he hears these words. He, was in, he, he catches a vision of being in the temple and he says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne. So there is a temporary king who is dead, but that eternal king of that eternal kingdom still sits on his throne. He is high. He is exalted. He will never Be deposed. And I heard the voice of that king say, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. And the first 40 chapters of this prophecy, Isaiah does just that. And he does it faithfully, and he does it primarily to the people living in his own day. That's what you see in these first 40 chapters of Isaiah. Basically, the message is this Trust in the Lord to keep you, do not trust in alliances with foreign nations. A full 10 chapters in this section is dedicated to the examination of Babylon, Moab, Syria, Cush, Egypt, predicting the eventual downfall of each one of those kingdoms. And God is saying through his prophet, don't find your security in aligning yourselves with a nation that has ever been as temporary as your own. Find your security in God. Find your security before you meet your demise. That's the first 40 chapters. And then the next 26 chapters... He starts to speak beyond the 8th century. See, Isaiah, again, he's a seer. He sees beyond the temporary situation to what is coming. He has this eternal perspective, and he speaks into it, not just to the 8th century where he lives, but also to the 6th century, 200 years into the future, when he, his children, and his grandchildren, and his great-grandchildren will be dead. But there will be another who will rise up, and in chapter 44, we get a sense of who that is, who says of Cyrus, He is my shepherd and will accomplish all that I please. He will say of Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt, and of the temple, let its foundations be laid. One of the evidences that we have of the supernatural nature of the word of God is this idea of fulfilled prophecy. And we have multiple examples of it. Here's one of them. Isaiah, 200 years before Cyrus is born, two centuries before anybody knows this guy's name, By the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and by the revealed power of God, the prophet calls out this king by name and says, this is the one who will be used by God to bring my people back. And so while in the 8th century he says, you're headed for doom and gloom, this kingdom is coming to an end, you need to get ready, and you need to find your security in the eternal God, he is speaking after that to people who will live two centuries later and saying, have rest, be at peace, your God will bring you back. And then the last 10 chapters are a message to you and me, a message to a generation still yet in the future to, again, that eternal kingdom. This is what the prophets do. They take these temporary situations, they rise above them, they give them people God's perspective, and then they point to that eternal king and his eternal kingdom. Okay? How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, and who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. This is an ancient declaration of victory in war. And he is saying there is an eternal king who will bring eternal peace. But it will not come the way you think. It will not come through warfare. It will not come through, at least not the conventional warfare we think about. It it will not come through acquisition of more land. It will not come through shrewd alliances with other nations. It will come through that ultimate king who comes initially to suffer. Look at Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He says to the people of the southern kingdom of Judah, you're doing this all wrong. You're looking at political savvy. You're looking at alliances. You're looking at mighty military. You're looking at the state of your economy. And what you should be looking at is the Lord your God who will confound the wisdom of the world by establishing an undefeatable, non-negotiable, absolutely unbeatable kingdom, an eternal kingdom. But he will do it through suffering on your behalf. And that kingdom will ultimately be manifest at the end of the age, a time in the future, even from your perspective and mine. In Isaiah 66, 18, we see a glimpse of what that looks like. For I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming together, all nations and tongues. This isn't just about Judah. This isn't just about this little piece of dirt in the Middle East. This is about the globe. God owns it all. He's going to reconcile all of it back to himself, and he's going to do it through an ultimate Israelite who rules and who reigns. That time is coming. Every nation, every language will be represented on that day, and they will come and bear witness of the glory of God. That's the message of Isaiah. And this message gets preached in Jerusalem. All right? So even if you're not a Christian, you probably heard of Jerusalem. Lift up your hand if you've heard of Jerusalem. Yeah, ever it's like, yeah, I've heard of Jerusalem. Isaiah gets to preach at basically the center of the known universe at that time. Okay? This would be like a Tim Keller preaching in Manhattan. All right? It would be like an Eddie Leo preaching in Jakarta, Indonesia, right? World-class city, lots of attention. Lots of cameras. Well, not so much in the 8th century B.C., but you know where I'm going with this, right? Really, really popular place. Lots of people. Metropolis. Places of learning. People from every culture under the sun coming within earshot of Isaiah. Everybody knows Jerusalem. And then there's Micah. Micah, unlike Isaiah, doesn't preach in Jerusalem. He preaches in Moresheth. Now, how many of you have heard of Moresheth? Take a look around. Where? That's kind of like falling waters, isn't it? I mean, I don't even know where that is. What is this? Like, I, you know, Some of you are like, yeah, I moved here because if we ever get invaded, this will be the last place we'll find, right? This is Morasheh. Nobody knows where this place is. It's a little podunk town about 25 miles southwest of Jerusalem. And this is where God appoints the prophet Micah to deliver his message. Scholars to this day still call him the country preacher for this region. And Micah... Gives another kind of message. It's a little more pointed and it's aimed at this idea of social injustice. Political elites of his day, political elites of our own day, hate the book of Micah because it rails against those who are in power over the way those who are not in power continue to be disenfranchised to the advantage of those who are in power. Take a look at chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. Its heads. Give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its pro- prophets practice divination for money. He's describing Jerusalem and the surrounding area, including the countryside where he is, and he says no matter where you are, if you're a member of the cultural elite, you might be a professor at a university, you might be a priest working in the temple, a pastor, a religious leader, you might be a political leader, all of the leaders are in office and are doing what they do for their own advantage. And God is angry with them over that. God is angry with the wicked. By the way, those who are disenfranchised continue to be pressed down. And yet they lean on the Lord. Like they don't stop calling out to Him. At the same time, their foot is on the necks of those poorer than they, more disenfranchised than they. They lean on the Lord and they say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Therefore, because of you, the elites who marginalize, who continue to oppress, who take advantage of other people to your own advantage. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins. Zion shall be plowed over as a field, and the mountain of the house a wooded height. Now think about who he's saying this to. People in the countryside. Pitchfork farmers. This is what's going to happen to your capital city. So in this sense, it's very much the same kind of message as Isaiah. Don't put your trust in foreign alliances and political savvy. Micah's saying, don't look to Jerusalem as your hope. If you want a city to look for in hope, there's another one, kind of like Moresheth that nobody's ever heard of, and we see it here. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, From you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel. So this is what we see from Micah. He preaches to country people and he says to them, listen, don't look to the city of Jerusalem as your hope. Look to the city of Bethlehem because that's the place from whence the seed promised to our father Adam, the seed which will come out of the generation that was produced by our father Abraham, the seed which will come from the loins of people belonging to our own ethnic group. He will not come from the city center. He too will be a country boy carpenter, a blue collar guy. And he will come out of a town that nobody's ever heard of, a town called Bethlehem. This is the story of Micah. So let's take these two prophets and contrast them. Isaiah in the city, Micah in the countryside. Now, I've I've had the privilege over 25 years of ministry to preach in a bunch of different contexts. Take a a look at a few of these because I've been in, in contexts that look very much like all of these. I've been in world class cities all over the world and preached the gospel and I'm so honored to have been able to do that. I've been in slums and ghettos. I've been in villages in everywhere from Central America to Southeast Asia. I've been in farmland in the Midwestern United States. I got flown into St. Louis one time to do a missions conference. They picked me up at the airport and two and a half hours later, I swear they were taking me somewhere to kill me. I'm like, where are we going? And I ended up in this place called Bell, Missouri. I couldn't get you back there if my life depended on it. But there were people there who wanted to hear about what God was doing around the world. And there were people there who needed to hear the very words of God. And so no matter where you are, no matter what context you're in, there are broken people everywhere. It doesn't matter where you are. There are broken people there who are in need of healing, in need of encouragement, and ultimately in need of Jesus. See, see there's... I get calls from colleagues occasionally who work in some of these world-class cities now and they're a little bit jealous of me because I've moved out of that context and I'm now living in Shepherdstown. And they go, brother, I'm telling you, it'd just be great to slow down a little bit. And I'm like, well, don't get into the pastorate if you want to slow down. But yeah, but I'm talking about your context, man. It'd be great to be in God's country once again. Shepherdstown, God's country. Wow. Okay, I like it here. It's a very enchanting place, so we'll go with that. All right, that's good. Or maybe my hometown of Greer, South Carolina, which is, again, everybody calls it God's country. I'd love to be there, but, but where are they? They're making a huge influence in some of the more strategic cities on the planet. Now, some of you may be sitting there going, yeah, and I wish I had what they had. I don't want to live here. Why am I in Shepherdstown? Why am I in Kearneysville? Why am I in Charlestown? Why am I in Boonesboro? Who lives in Boonesboro? And what you need to realize is God has placed you where you are at this time and place, and your responsibility is not to pine for some other context. Your responsibility, like Isaiah, Micah, is to flourish, to bloom, to grow, to serve, to heal, to preach, and to, in Jesus' name, bring reconciliation wherever you are. Because God uses people no matter where they are. Here's the second thing we learn from the prophets. God uses people of every kind of personality. Now we're going to get into some weird stuff because we're going to look at two people. We're going to move from the south and go back up to the northern kingdom of Israel about 10 years prior to the ministry of Isaiah, and we're going to find a man named Hosea. And Hosea gets this really interesting assignment. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. For the land commits whoredom, great whoredom, by forsaking the Lord. There are lots of places in the Bible where you can get sound marital advice. This is not one of them, okay? This is just not one of them. So guys, if you, yeah, well, Pastor, I know she's a little, but but she's hot. And by the way, Hosea, yeah, don't pull that mess on me, all right? Hosea had a very specific assignment at a very specific place and time, and it involved marrying a woman named Gomer, a woman who would eventually step out on him, cheat on him repeatedly. And, and we see this pattern in the book of Hosea, a pattern of betrothal, becoming one flesh, then the adultery, then the divorce, then a remarriage. And, and all of that is intended to demonstrate for God's people in a very tangible way how unfaithful Israel has been to her God. God wants people to look at Gomer. God wants people to be sickened at her immorality just before he, without anesthesia, says to them, you're worse than her. You ever thought of yourself like that? If your devotions are divided between the Lord, your God, and anything else, that's the way he looks at us. Exclusive devotion. That is is what he wants. And so this man watches his wife sleep around. Then he watches her sell herself to other men. Then he watches her as finally she becomes a victim of trafficking. And the story of Hosea is the story of a tender, loving, unconditionally committed husband who buys her back and sets her free the same way God buys us back and sets us free. It it portrays what is eventually coming when the seed promised to our father Adam when the seed produced by the nation that was brought into existence by the Jewish father Abraham, the ultimate Israelite will come and he will pay a penalty that will buy back the slaves. This is the message of Hosea. God intends for his people to be free. And so he sends a prophet into their midst to suffer with them and to model for them that redemption that's coming. Now let's contrast that with this other prophet this guy named Amos. He speaks about 10 years prior to Hosea, so about 20 years prior to Isaiah, at a time when things were a little better. When Hosea speaks, there's about three kings left in the northern kingdom of Israel, and it's already started to fray and come apart, and there's already the threat of the Assyrians on the horizon coming in to to conquer and to pillage and to scatter those 10 tribes so that they're never found again. Ten years earlier is when Amos speaks. Things just look a little more secure. People feel a little bit better about themselves. They feel a little bit better about the country. And Amos, this herder from Tekoa, not a priestly guy, not a highly educated guy, but is called by God as a sheepherder to go into the midst and to share with them that they are not as well off, they are not as secure as they may think themselves to be. Look at chapter 3, verse 14. On, that day I, on the day I punish Israel for his transgressions, I will punish the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. A little bit of explanation here. Those horns were basically a safe haven, okay? And so if somebody gets after me for something I've done or for something I'm perceived to have done, and I get to that altar and I grab those horns, even if they've got me by the back of the collar with a weapon in the other hand, they got to let go at that point, all right? It's like my safe space. So I want you to think about that when you read these words. The horns of the altar shall be cut off. The sheep herder from Tekoa moves into a kingdom that feels itself successful, feels itself under the protection and the pleasure of God Feels like they're always going to be secure. And he says to Israel, there is a day coming when God is going to come after you and you will have nowhere to hide. Even when you get to that altar, the horns will be broken off. You will have nothing to protect you. This is a brunt, brash, openly hostile prophecy. God's going to get you. That's basically the message of Amos, okay? And we see this, if you think that's bad enough, it gets worse. Take a look at this. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan. He's talking to women. Okay? I've been on five continents. I've been in multiple countries. I've been in multiple cultural contexts. And I completely get that sometimes there are contexts in which you can say something and it's taken as a high compliment and you go into another cultural context, you say that exact same thing and they take it as an ultimate insult. Right? You, you know that, right? Different people, uh, they express things in different ways. I've never been anywhere on any of the five continents where a woman feels complimented when she's called a cow. That seems to be kind of a universal thing, okay? And this is what the prophet says. Cows of Bashan, what, what, what do they do that they would be insulted like that? Who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy. Who say to your husband, bring me that we may drink. The Lord has sworn by his holiness that behold, the days are coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks. God's going to get you. And to these women, this is Amos's way of saying, hey, real housewives, you're not exempt from this, you slovenly, lazy, narcissistic, vain don't care about anybody but yourself. Don't give a rip about the poor. Don't care to serve. You lay on the couch all day. The most energy you can muster is when you yell at your husband to bring you another mojito. You too will be slaves. They will put fish hooks in your mouth and carry you away like a slab of meat. See, this is this is rough, right? So, So Amos is not politically correct. Hosea is not socially correct. Think think about that for a minute. Different personalities coming at just the right time. Different personalities and different approaches should be valued. We have that here. We have people with different temperaments, different personalities, different approaches to ministry. We've got people that like Amos, they, they can be loud and they can be strong and they can be clear. And sometimes it's offensive. And then there's teddy bears like me. What's so funny? And we do, we got people loud and strong and then we've got more gentle people who can do it. We've got people who can do one-on-one in a way that I just, I, I'm clumsy when I do that. We got people that can do small groups in a way that makes me Pastor Chris is here because he is a whiz at that kind of thing. I am no good at that. We need people who are, who are gifted at every single level and can bring these different kinds of personalities to bear on the body of Christ. Why? Because just like the people of Israel, there are times when the body of Christ needs an Amos to scream at us and give us clarity and direction. And then there's other times we need a Hosea to suffer with us because we don't know what's happening. And we need to see that that individual bleeds just like we do. No matter your personality type, introvert, extrovert, loud, soft, whatever, God can use you as his messenger. Here's the third thing we learn from the prophets. You can be known or you can be unknown. Now, just like almost everybody in this room has heard of Jerusalem, I would imagine that almost everybody in this room has heard of Elijah. Who's heard of Elijah? Yeah, rock star prophet. 1 Kings chapter 18. That's where we find this great showdown between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Ahab is the king. And Elijah challenges those prophets essentially to a duel. He says, let's build two altars. You build one to Baal, you cry out to Baal. I'll build one to the Lord my God and I'll cry out to the Lord our God. Let the God who answers by fire be God. And so the prophets of Baal begin and they start dancing and prancing around their altar and they start calling out, "Oh Baal, answer us. And there's silence. And so they get louder And then they start to cut themselves with rocks. That was an ancient pagan way of sort of priming the pump. Maybe if I give a little blood, there'll be something else that'll kind of come back to me. And all the while, I can almost picture Elijah sitting on a stump over on the side of the mountain just watching them and occasionally snickering to to himself. And he says this, cry aloud. Maybe you need to yell a little louder. For he is a God. Either he's musing. You know, maybe he's... Maybe he's in a daze. Maybe he's daydreaming about, I don't know what what your God would daydream about, but maybe he's daydreaming. Maybe he's, I don't know, maybe he's daydreaming about having people smarter than you follow him. I don't know. But maybe he's musing. Maybe he's relieving himself. I won't go as far with that one as I did in the nine o'clock, but I will tell you that in the Hebrew language, that actually describes a form of constipation that's where it is. Some of you, if you're offended by that, you're trying to be more holy than your God. That's what the Bible says, okay? And it's funny, so let's enjoy it, okay? Or maybe he's on a journey. Maybe he just took off and forgot about you guys. Perhaps he's asleep and needs to be, you know, maybe he got old and he kind of, you know, he just wake him up, continually taunting them until finally they give up. And then Elijah has repaired the altar of the Lord, they put a sacrifice on it, then he has volunteers come and they douse the thing with water. He digs a trench around this altar and so much water is poured that the the offering is drenched, the altar is drenched, and the trench around the altar basically becomes a moat. And in one simple prayer, fire from the Lord comes from heaven, burns up and consumes completely the offering, Burns up and consumes completely the altar and laps up the water around the pool, around the moat. And Elijah will forever be in the memories of our Jewish cousins and the faith. And of you and me. Everybody knows Elijah. Elijah's a rock star. And then four chapters later, we read about another prophet. A prophet named Micaiah. Ahab, still the same king in the north, he wants to go to war against an enemy common to the southern kingdom. And so he enlists the southern army by talking to King Jehoshaphat. And he says to Jehoshaphat, we can't defeat this common enemy together. Let's band together and let's go to war with one another. And Jehoshaphat says, have you inquired of the Lord? Jehoshaphat's wise enough to go, you know, before I commit my military and my people to this and go off with you, I know what kind of man you are. I know you set up altars to foreign gods. I don't know if I need to be in league with you. Have you asked the Lord of this? And Ahab says, of course I did, which is code for, I talked to my religious advisory council and they told me it's great. Go on up. The hill is yours. The land is yours. Just take it. Take it. And then Jehoshaphat says this, but have you talked to a real man of God? Because he recognizes the difference. He recognizes the difference. That's still true, by the way. It doesn't matter whether you're a king in the ancient world or whether you're a president of the United States today, the prime minister of Great Britain, the leader of some other country around the world. You can have a prophet or you can have a fanboy, but you cannot have both. And Jehoshaphat realizes there's a difference between those two, and you've been talking to your fanboys. I want you to talk to a man of God. Ahab says, you know, I'm not so sure I want to do that because the only one I know is this guy named Micaiah, and he never says nice things about me. So they call Micaiah in, and this is Micaiah's response. I saw Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. This is what's going to happen. And Ahab is enraged. And he orders his soldiers to seize Micaiah. Put the cuffs on him. Tie him up. Throw him in prison. And I'll deal with him when I get back. And the last words we ever hear from this man of God are, King, you ain't coming back. And the next day, Ahab is killed in battle. And we never hear from Micaiah ever again. Rock star preacher, a guy who gets one shot and then he's done. Both of them, faithful, faithful to the end. Let me show you this picture Two guys you probably know, Billy Graham on the left, and that big crowd that you're seeing there—that's in Seoul, South Korea, and that—I uh, don't know—it was maybe 30 years ago. But that—that that pretty much was Billy Graham's vista for the half century or more of his ministry, wasn't it? Rock star preacher, faithful man of God, right? Rock star is not always a bad thing. Faithful man of God, millions of people coming to faith in Jesus. Over there on the right, Martin Luther King. Did you know that the most substantive Writing that we have, that did the most to transform our society in the best way with regard to civil rights, that came from the pen of Martin Luther King were letters that he wrote from a prison cell. Do you know that? So we t- we tend to dismiss people. Like in fact, in the '60s, that's exactly what they did to MLK. They just dismissed him, especially people in the South. Let's just dismiss. I yeah, just yeah, but look at him. He's a jailbird. What can he do? He continued to be faithful. Some people will be granted a spotlight, and we should thank God for it when they use that spotlight to faithfully proclaim the name of Jesus. Some people will be locked away in a dungeon and never heard from again. And here's the question. Are you committed to be faithful to your God no matter if you're a rock star or an unknown? Because I'm telling you, this is a huge idol in the Western church right now. We worship celebrity why we go berserk anytime anybody says anything bad about Tim Tebow. Really? I mean, be thankful for the young man. God's given him a great platform. He's, He's being faithful to his call. That's great. But we act as though God is not honored and Jesus' kingdom can't move forward unless we're the ones with all the fanfare and the spotlight. Meanwhile, the Bible is full of stories of men like Micaiah who had one shot and they were faithful at it and they were locked away and they were never heard from again. But God's kingdom moved forward by such men. So what kind of man are you going to be? Are you going to worship the spotlight or are you going to worship the king? Because you can't worship both. You can't do it. Western Christianity is infected with this stuff like a cancer. Like, how exciting can we be? How rock ish can I be? Can we get an extra spotlight in here? Can I get more downloads? Can I get more logs in? Can more people read my blog? That is not faithfulness. God determines the size of your audience. And ultimately, you're only preaching and, and proclaiming and serving and doing all that for an audience of one anyway. So what will you do? If you worship celebrity, you will get celebrity. If you worship the king, you will get the kingdom. Only one of those lasts forever. So what's it going to be? Count Zizendorf, who founded the Moravian Missionary Movement, when he was training his recruits, used to say, you have three objectives. Preach the gospel, die, be forgotten. Are you prepared to do that? Are you? Because that's what God calls us to be. And I'm not saying you should wish after that. I don't want to die tomorrow. I'd prefer to be heard from after this Sunday. But are we willing to be faithful to God no matter the cost? Are we going to worship celebrity or will we just be thankful when God uses it on occasion to to promote His kingdom that will outlast celebrity? What, What are we going to worship? Because God can use it. You don't need a spotlight to be used in mighty ways by God. He uses the known and he uses the unknown. Here's the final thing. You can speak from any time or place. Here's the big lesson from this period of history. 300 years from the reign of Rehoboam until the end of both the northern and the southern kingdom until there is no more Israel. No matter what was transpiring in history, God's people had a messenger. So the question is where, when, how, and under what circumstances has he called you to speak? and to fulfill the purpose for which you were created. The prophets speak at a very volatile time in Israel's history, a time that's not going to end well, at least not politically speaking, for the nation of Israel. And in their messages, we learn that God is sending an eternal king for an eternal kingdom that is for all people look above and beyond even the next 350 years because a kingdom is coming that cannot be contained in one nation. It cannot be expressed in one language. It cannot be limited to one personality type or one approach. And the hope of all of this is made sure because a better king is coming than any that we saw in those two lists. And our role as the people of God is to continue that tradition, that prophetic tradition. And be God's mouthpiece. See, there, there's, I, I get asked sometimes, there are there still prophets today? In the sense that we saw back then. I think God does give certain people great insight. I had someone speak to me after the 9 o'clock service into something very personal in my own life. I, they, they would, there's no way they could have known what was going on with me. No way. Holy Spirit gave them insight into what was happening and they prayed for me. And I was, I was very grateful for that. So yeah, I believe God gives people insight. And within the, the bounds of, of Scripture, we can judge whether or not something is from God or whether or not it's, it's not from God. Yeah, I, I absolutely believe that happens. But mostly the way that's modeled in the New Covenant era is the church is the prophet. Martin Luther said it this way, the church is God's mouthpiece. Collectively, we proclaim the mystery of God and the greatness of the gospel. And we transform the world by doing that. And we have seen tradition and after tradition after tradition of men who have done it. But oftentimes, like the prophets in the Old Testament, they have to do it against the tide. On the left there, you can see William Wilberforce, the Member of Parliament from Great Britain, who battled and battled and battled to the extent that his own health was chronically affected in order to free the African slaves living under slavery under British rule. Over on the right is Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who stood up to the German church in the midst of the Holocaust. You're like, well, wait a minute. The church of all, yeah, ask German Lutherans whether or not they think they might have had some bad ideas about 80 years ago. It was Bonhoeffer who said, we are not to simply bandage the wounds of victims beneath the wheels of injustice. We are to drive a spoke into the wheel itself. do we want to be like these men? Do we want to be that body that doesn't just settle in and take it easy? Wouldn't you rather be the body who serves the king, who takes over? Wouldn't you rather be that? You won't do that and rest easy. You won't be able to do that without rubbing up against people's perceptions and people's preferences. And people. It's, it's going to take facing things that happen, even on a societal level, even in our own day. And it's going to take a heart of love for God's people. And ultimately, it's going to take a heart of love for God that, like Micaiah, is willing to have just one shot as long as I can be faithful. So you can be that kind of person that goes, I I want more than one shot. Or you can be the kind of guy that goes, you know, I don't care how many shots I get. Just give me, just help me be faithful whenever I get a shot. Because I'm pointing to something beyond this temporary world, something that will outlast this building, something that will outlast any of us, something that will outlast every single local church on the planet. We preach, we teach, we serve for an audience of one, and we will be judged in the end like all the kings of Israel and Judah on this one question. Were we faithful to the Lord our God, and did we proclaim faithfully? Did people walk away from relationships and interaction with us with a clear understanding of this eternal king and where he came from and where he's going and where he's coming and what he's going to do? Is that the kind of people we want to be? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the examples we see in the Old Testament of men who were faithful to you from every place, from every time, through every circumstance, utilizing multiple different kinds of personalities. Father, you used them, and they were faithful. And so, Lord, make us faithful. Help us, Father, to seek after you exclusively. May we be a people who are truly always having our eyes on the eternal kingdom and the eternal king that is coming. And I ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.